You are listening to Meeting of the Madams. This is Amory Sky. Hello, beloved. Welcome to another episode. I hope you are having a great Women's History Month. On today's episode, we will continue our series inspired by the Netflix, The Chair, on Black women in higher education. Today, we'll have Dr. Evangeline D.B. Hudson, affectionately known as Dr. Eve, to talk about her time as an instructor, different spaces of higher education she's been in, but most importantly, how she helps students of color navigate um, being a first-generation college student in different spaces. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Also, another thing I forgot to mention, Dr. Eve and I go back several years. She went to high school with me um, at Harry P. Harding University High School in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, So we have a little bit of history, but it was fun catching up with her. Again, thank you for listening. If you have any recommendations, I can be found at Sky on Instagram, A-M-A-R-I-E-S-K-Y-Y. Same thing on Facebook. Thanks. So I am Dr. Evangeline B.B. Hudson, born and raised in the great, also great city of Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, ended up being the first in my family, uh, the first for four generations to go to college. Um, didn't know a single thing about college when I was in high school. I um, mean, like I heard about it, right? By the time I was a senior, I was actually dual enrolled in community college and um, in high school. So I was going half a day in school and at nighttime, I would go to community college and take classes. So I had mentors and people in my life who helped expose me to college and the idea of what college could be. Um, even for somebody like me, um, how to have still a single mom, three kids, working three jobs, you know, trying to help us to have the life that she felt that she could give us, right? The best that she could, but she knew there was something better for us. Um, ended up going to an HBCU. Thankful to um, my then favorite teacher, Milton Cotwell, Milton T. Cotwell, get it right, um, who I later learned was an HBCU grad and also a member of a Black Greek letter organization. Um, it was somewhere that was small. It felt really comfortable, very much like me, and they had this very rich history. Um, but I didn't know that I was first generation. I didn't know anything about the language or the context of first generation until I actually got to my master's program. And we were talking about student populations in the class one day. And I read, you know, people whose parents don't have, you know, a four-year degree. And I was like, wait a minute, everybody got a degree. And that really triggered the thoughts and the understanding of what first generation was. But being a black woman, um, I only ever thought of first generation as people who were first generation Americans, um, never knowing anything about being first generation as a college student and or graduate. So the work that I've gotten to do um, over almost six years now, I've transitioned out of higher education six years ago, um, has really been inspired by being the first to go to my, in my family to go to college and to graduate, to get a degree, to be a professional um, and to figure out what life looks like for me because I think far too often people see that you're educated but don't really think about those intersections of who people are beyond education because they think every education every educated person has the same background that everybody comes from money that everybody you know 
has educated parents and they're going to be professionals and all kinds of stuff. Right. But that's not true. Um, so that's a little bit about, you know, of course, me and how I've gotten to this place and what's inspired the work that I'm doing um, now as, you know, as a entrepreneur, you know, uh, an empowering speaker, a podcast host myself and an author um, doing a lot of things. Okay. What made you transition out of higher education full-time? Because I know you're still teaching, but what made you transition out of higher education full-time after you um, you went through, you got your PhD at University of Southern Mississippi and proceeded on what stood out for you with the stories of other first-generation college students? For me, leaving higher education was because I was burnt the hell out. I was burnt. And I thought something was wrong with me. I thought that because I could never get to a place and stay longer than a year, year and a half, that it was really something going on with me. But in my last space, when I couldn't explain medical things that were happening, um, sometimes having just randomly blurred vision, having issues with my blood pressure, having blood sugar issues, and people say, oh, that's because you're fat. Well, I wasn't having those issues before and what changed, you know, I may have had a few bouts to be very straight up with borderline um, diabetes, right? Being pre-diabetic as they would say, but I got those things under control until, you know, I found myself in a situation where I couldn't sleep at night. Um, to be candid, I was trying to soothe with alcohol. So wine, you know, was something that I was turning to, to help me go to sleep or just to you know, have my moments, um, which I wasn't proud of and didn't until recently start talking about that. But I was becoming, in my opinion, one of the worst versions of myself because of what I had to deal with. And I was talking then to my, my newlywed husband and I said to him, I think I need to take a break. I think I need to figure this thing out because this isn't healthy for me. Um, I had gone to the hospital in an ambulance from work at least three times within a year. And that was something that, I mean, just stuff was happening. Um, and that last time that I left um, work in an ambulance, I said, I got I got to do something different. And so mentally, emotionally, physically, the stress, the worry, what I was doing was in my heart to do, but things around me, um, were impacting me greatly. So I decided that a one year break is what I was going to take. And I would go back, you know, to higher rate in some capacity or just figure out if there was something different for me. Because at this point, maybe it was me and I needed something different. And I need to be honest about that. Um, but as a black woman, somebody who was first to go to college and got this degree, you know, how do you make some of these decisions because they don't align with the path to success? But I did. So what was going to be, again, a one-year venture has now turned into six. It's been the healing for me um, to be able to be my best self, to lose over 159 pounds. Um, it's been able to be my best self, but then also realize in this that my identity as a first-generation college graduate, I can help others, um, students, and grads alike to normalize the experience of, yes, you made it, 
you got the degree, but what next and, and how next um, to feel seen? Because I, again, couldn't turn to parents to talk about professional woes, you know, and things that were happening because they wouldn't have understood it. I mean, my mom, I mean, I'm, my father hadn't been in my life, so she wouldn't have understood it, stood it have been able to give me some of the advice I may have been looking for. Um, but I wanted to create a community for people to have a safe space who are first gen to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what this is. Um, but I know that I'm wonderful in all of my ways and I want to be able to do something meaningful. I just need somebody to understand me because my white privilege supervisors didn't understand me. You know, they threw me on the bus with a quickness. And sometimes the black women didn't understand me either because since I got mine, you get yours. Um, and I didn't want that, especially for first gens who are trying to come out of a lot of times um, poverty to be able to sustain themselves financially. We need to work. We need to have successful businesses, right? Um, to just be able to, to move about in the world in a peaceful way. And that's really been the foundation for why the work I've done with students matters so they can be strong in who they are and look out into the world and see themselves and know that they're not by themselves, right? So when they're navigating some of these spaces and, and, and situations that it just makes sense for them. Okay, so part of that leads to my next question about what is the role of toxic white masculinity or toxic white women um, in higher ed and how that leans into the experiences of first-generation African-American college students, especially because I know even um, myself in higher ed now, I am able to identify it really quickly and put it to the side a little bit better than I would have been even a graduate student a decade ago. You know, I think that the biggest thing is dismissing people's experiences um, or making the experiences because they can't relate, um, but they don't show up in a different way. One, because I mean, really you can't. Like if I've never been through something, I can't understand it, but being able to empathize, I think wanting to empathize as well, because far too often I think it's, uh, it's not my problem kind of perspective that comes across or kind of a way, that's not my problem. People should pick themselves up by the bootstraps. What if I ain't got no damn straps on the boots? Thanks. How do I pick myself up? How do I do that when I'm constantly, you know, put in situations where I'm cornered? I got to try to figure out how to pay for books and then food, or if I got to choose between paying for food or paying for books, you know, there are so many things that come up, can come up, that may be problematic or if I got to help take care of a grandparent or aunt or brother or sister, my mom, I'm working. You know, there's things that we're like, students should just do better. They need to be more focused. They need to come to class. Don't go to sleep in class. But I just pulled an eight hour overnight shift to be in this class. All right. There are things that people don't see, but their privilege won't let them see. But sometimes far too often, in my opinion, people don't care. But I mean, people are, I think sometimes, that's the things I'm naturally selfish. Um, so when you think about whiteness and, and being toxic, um, they're being who they know to be, but that's also not their fault because that's that's how they were raised. And it's for both 
us and them to understand though that people have different perspectives and different life experiences and the goal is for us to all find our way whatever that looks like what is the number one way that um african-american higher education instructors can influence their students so that they know they have other people out there that are willing to help them while they finish up their matriculation, but also once they get into the field? So I think one of the biggest things is identifying with students, period, like saying, I am first generation, right? I'm a first generation college graduate and talking about your experiences and using examples. So even if it's in class and you teach a communication, you wanna talk about communication challenges, um, you know, what does it mean for me to see somebody argue at work when I was growing up as a kid, right? I saw people argue at work, but as professionals, right? Whatever that looks like, quote unquote, you don't argue at work in a white collar job. That ain't something you do. You may disagree politely, um, but we think about some of these videos that go viral from low SES, you know, um, areas. We're not gonna name them, but you know, them videos that the manager did this, the manager showed out, they cut somebody out. You don't see some of these things happening in a professional setting. So to even have to navigate, you know, that and what it looks like, um, being able to show how to show up, to be that professional, but also to give more of us permission to be ourselves, right? Um, I, again, transition out of higher ed, as typical nine to five, I guess you would say, quote unquote, and I say typical because it's nine to five, like you go to work sometime, nine to seven, nine to nine. <laughs> if you want to be truthful about it, it's not 24 seven. Um, to be myself and to even rethink professionalism, because as a professor now, my students see me and they're like, whoa, tattoos? Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't come and I don't have on a suit. Nope. Not, you know, not everybody's wearing a suit, but that doesn't make me any less professional. Um, professional environments look very different. So again, identifying with students, being able to connect and tell real stories. My mama, some people, oh, I did this, this, this. Well, you know, my mama did this, this, and this, and this, this, and this happened to me. So I'm not discrediting what you've been through, but what I'm saying is I've been there, I understand. And I'm challenging you to rise to the occasion as well. Um, and I think just being supportive and understanding and patient, being intentional with students, especially, is something that's important because there were people who were very intentional with me and I feel like I've turned out just fine. And to be able to say that, especially thinking about um, how challenging it is to be a Black person anyway, um, how refreshing is it to say to somebody that I see you, and you're okay, and I got you. Now let's let's keep it moving. I think that is a definitely a crucial piece. I found myself in the past, even when I didn't think that I was doing it, my students were like, you see us differently. That's why we can come and ask you questions that have nothing to do with this class. And I was like, okay. So I think the difference is, especially when students in your class look like you, they are seeking something, whether or not you, we want to or not. And as another one of my professors said, mothering sometimes goes into a little bit being a black female in higher education, whether or not you really want to sometime or not, it is part of um, the journey. So what advice would you have for other black women who are continuing through higher education, they've decided to go back and get their master's degree or go into a doctoral program. What advice did you have for those women? 
you gotta understand that it's you gotta understand that it's bigger than you. So much deeper than you, so much greater than you. We do things for ourselves, but innately we are shaping the world around us and everybody around us. So while we as black women, I think, you know, I'm biased when I say this, we automatically lean toward greatness anyway. We're ambitious, we do wonderful things. What we can't take away from um, is the fact that we are going to naturally inspire somebody, but also we should want to help others around us along the way. So in programs, creating communities to support each other in academic work and research and studying and getting through comps and sometimes just going to have a glass of wine and just to talk, you know, and get the stress off your chest from grad school. Um, I think we need to be there to support each other. I think we need to seek out each other more intentionally in academic spaces um, and not see each other as the competition because the only competition you really have is that of competition with yourself because everybody's got a different assignment, right? A different purpose. And that's for that person to decide what that looks like for themselves, right? But to show up in your excellence um, and your excellence being if you need to take a break so that you can be excellent to be able to do that and find the balance, you know? I also think that it's important for us to be honest with ourselves about if things are or are not working out, you know, to not continue to do things just because we're trying to impress folks or because somebody said we couldn't, but to do things because we really want to do it. Because having a degree is great. You know, they're, they're wonderful. I love education. I love school. But what is it costing you to even get that degree? Is it really worth your while? Um, or you're just trying to prove a point, you know, so being honest with ourselves. So there's so many things, um, aligning yourselves with your values in school and finding mentors and advocates of all backgrounds, really, to be on your team to support you and to help you get through uh, those times because there's no straight path and we can't do things by ourselves. So it's just really critical for us to lean in um, and learn how to open our mouths. What we'll, would we'll grandma say? Close mouth, don't get fed. When we need help to be able to ask for that help and to be able to really embrace the journey and let the journey be what it is. Um, and I think for the person who's listening, like I think many of you will understand it, just let the, be, the journey be what it is. Let it be what it is. Okay. And my final question is how do you balance being an entrepreneur uh, and everything that, that facets for you <laughs> are for you, but also <laughs> by teaching as well, continuing to still teach in that space? I don't know. <laughs> no, I do know. Um, everything has its place, its season. And when I definitely have one of the most amazing teams, so I do have um, people that work with me to help me with my business. And everybody has their their part, their role that they play. So shout out to my team um, near and far for what they do, because I can't do it by myself. I have amazing friends. I have great family um, who support me, who are thinking about me to be able to say, I know that you need space right now. You need to take a break right now. Or I can call and vent right now or somebody who says I know of a resource. So people who are always looking out. I think the other thing, especially with like the, the teaching part, because I've been back in the classroom for about three years now, and it's great, but it's also part-time and it's online. So I found a way to show up in a space that 
still gave me the flexibility um, that I need to fully push my business forward, but also allows me to stay connected with my students, um, to stay connected in the higher ed space because I love it. You know, I love it. Like I think I say now I'm a higher ed adjacent um, because I still serve many institutions of higher learning through my business, right? Um, and I get to show up as myself, my best self in it, but I'm also, you know, said teaching in it that still just lets me do what I really enjoy. So that's the other thing I would say if I had to go back and add more advice to people, find where you really want to be in a space. I didn't realize how much the teaching was going to bring me joy versus being in an in administration. Um, and I love, I love being in a classroom because I love being with students. So to still be impactful. But when the balance, if I need to take off, like I recently took off for a little over a month and didn't apologize about it. I need the time off. And fortunately, because I am a full-time entrepreneur, I can make those decisions of saying I need a moment or two or four, right? Um, and to be able to move in that space. And, you know, if something needs to stop, I stop it. And if I want to pick something up, I pick it up. But I'm always listening to myself um, spiritually, you know, emotionally, following that intuition, um, being led and paying attention. And then from those things, I, I find my balance. And when necessary, I outsource anything. If it's meal prep, if it's car washing, if it's house cleaning, I pay for it. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad you understand and find your balance in your life. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to another episode of Meeting the Madams. And again, self-preservation is key, especially um, in higher education spaces. I hope that you have a great week. Again, thanks for listening. One love, Emory Sky. Shine on.